Uh, so let's let's open up in prayer specifically for the sermon tonight. Lord, I thank you uh, again um, that we can stand in this place and, and openly uh, proclaim the truth that your word uh, speaks to us. And I pray that uh, as I preach this tonight that your Holy Spirit would uh, move among us, uh, do a work of refining and sanctifying our minds and our thoughts uh, concerning who you are and, and what you are doing, what you have done and continue to do uh, in this world for your purposes and for your people and ultimately for the glory of Christ uh, and for the glory of your name. Um, I pray specifically for me tonight uh, as this is as we are kind of wading deeper and deeper into these uh, difficult passages of text. Uh, difficult for multiple reasons. Um, quite possibly, sometimes these are difficult, Lord, because we ourselves are, are um, hard-headed, um, and and sometimes we are fixed in our ways. I know that's that's speaking of of me, um, but I pray that Your Holy Spirit would uh, move among us, that we would, um, as we open Your Word humbly. Uh, that you would uh, grant us mercy and grant us compassion, Lord, because you are the one who shows mercy and you are the one who shows shows compassion. Um, so I just ask that you would do that tonight for us. It's in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. All right. So if you're new, because I know I, I think I see a face or two that's New to the study, we're we're now nine chapters into uh, the book of Romans. Many, 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 probably like 34, 35 hours worth of sermons have led us up to this point. Um, I would encourage you to spend some time in the book of Romans in working up to the things that we're going to talk about tonight. If you've missed any of the ones, any of the sermons recently as we've been in chapter 9, but you've been along for most of uh, most of the way, I would I would ask you to kind of just go ahead and maybe listen to the sermons I've put them online, or just go back and 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 read through the early verses of chapter nine. I'm gonna do I'm gonna do my best to maybe encapsulate some of the ideas that I hope we took away from the first couple of sermons through this book to kind of get us back in a place that we can start digging in uh, to the scripture tonight. Um, one thing that that I that I just kind of want to put this out there before um, before we get started, um, I was hoping that we would finish up chapter nine tonight. Like in my initial, like let me figure out where we're going this week. Um, I had initially planned to start in um, chapter nine, verse fourteen, and go as far as uh, verse twenty nine. Um, as I started digging more and more and more into this, um, I've decided to kind of step back from that so that we don't have like a four-hour sermon um, tonight. And we're only going to look at verses 14 through 18 tonight, specifically out of Romans. But what we are going to do is we're going to go back and look again like we did last week. We're going to go back and pay, try to pay homage to the passages from which Paul is here drawing to come to the conclusions that he's coming to. So um, if, you've, if you are here and continue to be here, and it seems like it's taking us time, maybe a long time to get through chapter 9, 
Um, I, I'm doing that on, on purpose um, because I don't want us to come away from this feeling like something maybe has been skimmed over or we haven't paid enough attention to certain things or, or even, in, even, you know, like I don't want myself to be like, there's some things in here I want to be honest that it would be easier for me to just say, let me step on past that so we don't have to maybe deal with that. Um, so there's kind of, I, I want y'all to know that there's kind of a wrestling me of, of, of what, where do we focus, where do we look at. There's so many places. If you spend any time in this, in this chapter, there's so many places that our minds will tend to go as we dig into this uh, chapter of text. So um, as we've been looking at this and as I've been preparing, I've been asking my, myself, Lord, there's so many places we could go. Where specifically do you want us to go in this, and, and I hope that that um, shows through over the next couple of sermons. So I want us to, we're not going to read through the entire text again, but I do want us to uh, remind ourselves of what we've seen over the last couple of sermons. And from the first sermon, chapter 9, verse 1, through chapter 9, verse 5, we'll add 6 in there, but we covered 6 twice um, the thing that I would want you to take away from that is Paul's burden for his brothers, the Jews, right? Paul has a heavy heart and continues to have a heavy burden for his brothers, his kinsmen, the Jews who have fallen away. So as we get into this, I want us to take away that Paul is burdened for the lost. And so too should we be burdened for the lost. But the thing that I wanted, and, I'm, and I kind of made mention of it maybe in a couple of times last week, that I want us to take away from this whole thing, is that as we're digging into these passages of text that start to get harder and harder for us to chew on, the thing that I want us to take away from this is to never think that God has less compassion or less love or less concern for the lost and perishing than man can have. Do y'all, did y'all get that last time? Did I make mention of it enough for it to co- kind of come out? That I want that to, that to be something that we get as we're thinking about what we're doing here, is never should we question the character of God as we're digging into these truths that Paul's trying to give us here, right? So I don't want us to ever question whether or not God's good, whether or not God's kind, whether or not God's just. What we're going to see is as we dig into this, Paul's going to address the question of God's justice specifically, right? Because as we start digging into some of the ideas in this text, what we'll find is that our, our human ways of thinking tend to lead us there, right? We tend to go there very quickly, and I think anytime we dig into this chapter, you'll find that this chapter among among true and genuine believers, this chapter and the two chapters that follow are probably some of the most disputed, like heatedly disputed chapters in all of Scripture because I think what happens many times is we put on one side the sovereign control and power of God that He cannot fail, and on the other side we pose that the 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 character of God is at stake in these things. And what I want us to get at is that Paul is not saying it's either the character of God or the power and will and sovereignty of God that's in question here, 
right? He wants to tell us clearly what we see and explored a little bit more last week, which is what he tells us in verse 6, but it is not as though the Word of God has failed. So the thing that we should get when we're asking the question, why? Why are we exploring this? What has happened to God's quote-unquote people since the church has come onto the saints? Somebody tell me. What's happened? When we talk about the Jews... The Jews, by and large, have rejected their own Messiah. So Paul here is addressing, because in chapter 8, he lays out a hope so grand, so huge, that says that no matter what this world puts against us, or no matter what the powers of darkness in this world set against us, that none of that can separate us from our Savior and the promises and the hope that we have in Him. But the big question is, is if God could go back on His promises in the past, He could go back on His promises to us. And Paul's here in the chapters 9, 10, and 11 that we're digging into now, wanting to say it is not as though that has ever happened. God has never gone back on His Word. So He's been exploring and digging in. And last week specifically, we looked at verses, let's just go ahead and read, let's just go ahead and read it for the sake of reading. Let's look at verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham, and not all are children of Abraham, because there is offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So he's done it once before is what Paul's saying. What we're seeing here, where God has shown favor favor to a specific people, this is not the first time, right? He's done it before and he's showing us a couple of cases in Scripture. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. But what about his brother, right? And, And the question that I want you to start thinking now so that when we address it later is, was it to his brother, right? Was it fair to his brother that his brother was sent away while God's favor was poured out on the second son, right? Was that fair, right? Because here's, here's the, we're dealing with in this the idea that God's people have now fall, fallen away as the church is starting to take precedence in the plan and working out of God. The, the supposed people of God seem to have now fallen away. Has God failed in His promises? No. God has not failed in His promises is what He's trying to say. What we are seeing now, what Paul's trying to tell to the Jews, and anyone who's paying close attention here, is what we are seeing now, this is not the first time. In fact, this is the way that it's been going all along. So throughout the Old Testament, we see a narrowing narrowing view that in the New Testament finds its end in Christ on the cross, right? So what we find in the Old Testament is a narrowing, narrowing, narrowing down to a very specific people group, down to a a nation of the Jews. They reject Him. Now in Christ we find again a narrowing down. It's not just the nation of the Jews, but it is a particular Jew. It is Christ Himself. And what I want us to see here is that Paul's trying to put together this picture that what we've seen in the past 
is happening again, but now it is in a radically different form. Where before it would seem that all other peoples of the world were being narrowed out of this thing, down to this very specific group. Now in Christ what we find is the gospel being given to all peoples, every tribe, every nation, every tongue. This is the picture that comes down, this narrowing down, narrows down, finalizing in Christ but not ending, right? Because here's the, here's the point that I want us to get to. When we look, when we look, as we read down through here, and we see in verse 11, though they were not born and had done nothing either good or bad, and here's the specific part that I want us to get, in order that the purpose, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. When we explore the idea of God's purpose of election. And I said it a couple of times last week because I wanted it to stick in your minds and not be able to... There's a lot of places that we can think about when we think about God's election, right? And that's one of the things whenever I say, Lord, where do we want to go with this? I want us to center in and focus on this one idea, God's purpose of election. Big picture purpose of election. What is it? I said it a couple of times last week. Do y'all remember? What is God's big picture purpose of election? So God is, the purpose of God, God's purpose in election is His glory. He is working for His glory in the exaltation of Christ, right? In the person of Christ. So God's ultimate purpose of election is what? His ultimate purpose is His glory. And that glory seen most clearly, most evidently, in the person of Christ, in the cross, right? In what goes on there. That is the ultimate purpose. And here's what I want to tell us, and this is why I say that there's a lot of things. So I see working up to it, and then I, I, like, as I see, and I think of God's purpose for election. And I mentioned last week, we can look in Revelation, and John has a, a, an, an amazing vision of the future, which we talked about. Is that, is that vision that he saw going to take place, church? Will every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people group be around his throne worshiping him and giving him glory? Will he have a people, names, faces, individuals from every tribe, every nation, every tongue? For what purpose ultimately? For his glory and the exaltation. Of Christ. So when we think about it, whether we're thinking after the cross or before the cross, I want us always our focus on, on what's God's purpose in this. Because, like, man, y'all know that there's lots of places that we can go with this idea when we start thinking about this. And there's lots of places that when we go there, we probably are bordering on sinful faults. And I think what we're going to find as we dig into Scripture and as Paul starts exploring these, he starts answering back at those sinful thoughts. Those would be thoughts that I've already and will continue to warn you against. Those are thoughts that bring into question the character of God himself. So do not in any way question the goodness, the kindness, the gentleness, the mercy of the God who has saved us, right? And we have done much work in examining who we are apart from Christ, so that when we come to passages of text like what we are going to address tonight, 
that we should not be questioning the character of God, but I think for many of us, we need to be questioning our view of the character of man. Right? And we mentioned this a little bit last week as I kind of brought up this idea that, that seems to run rampant in our culture today, that people are just inherently born good. If you believe that people are inherently born good, then what we're going to dig into tonight in Scripture is going to be a very, very, very difficult thing for you. Because it's going to seem extremely, extremely harsh that God would do such a thing to good people. So if you believe that people are born inherently good, deserving of the mercy, the kindness, the compassion of a Savior, then I think we need to go back and look at the track record of humanity. And I think we need to address again Romans chapter 3, We are clearly told that no one seeks God. If we have an understanding of our need for Him instead of our deserving of His gifts, then passages like tonight, though we may not be able to get fully away from the weight of them, will at least make us more humble about who we are and shift the focus and the glory back on the one who gives mercy and compassion. Right? Instead of questioning him as though we have place or footing to stand. Because who are we? Who are we to question God? That is a question that we must be humble in asking ourselves. Like, who am I? Like, I have to steal my very understanding of what goodness is from him to question his goodness, right? Like, I want us to understand that, that I borrow from God all my understanding of what good is and what good ought to be so that I can then turn back to him and question him. I should be shut down immediately for that kind of attitude. So as we approach the passage of text tonight, I want us to be humble in this, right? I want us to be humble in this. So let's look now at the idea that brings us to the question. So verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. I want to refer you back to last week's sermon um, for kind of the detailed digging into why this is speaking about groups of individuals, the, the, the nation of Esau or, or Edom and Jacob or Israel, and not specifically speaking of a hatred in the sense that we hate our brothers, but in a sense that God has shown great and amazing favor to Israel, a favor so great, so grand, so wonderful, that just life in general, just living day to day in general for the Edomites would seem as though God had great hatred for them. Because through, and, and, I, and I said it this way last week, for eternity, a Jew sits on the throne and not an Edomite, right? 
For eternity, it will be a Jew who sits on the throne. That is the favor of God being shown to one, right? In such a way that all of these blessings have been channeled through these people now into Christ ultimately as the, as the answer or the end of these things, right? So with that in mind, that God chose a people over another people, we find Paul now raising this question in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice or is there injustice on God's part? So the thing that I want us to understand straight away, right, is that what Paul's saying in the verses before naturally leads you to Faults that he's now answering in these verses, right? So if you interpret the passages above in some way that do not lead you to where you would need to then answer these questions that Paul is presenting here, then it's possible you have interpreted those passages in error, right? Because Paul is following from one thought to another in this. And as Paul is bringing this question up, he's thinking about the things that he said before, and he's saying, oh, I know there's some smart ones out there, and I know you're going to ask this, right? So Paul's not bringing this up because it wouldn't lead you to think there. What Paul said previously would lead you to think about God being fair, right? It would lead you to think. And for the Jew, here's the thing. Who's he addressing in all of this? What's the point in all of this? To answer, has God's word failed the Jews? So now he's using scripture to answer back to the Jew who would say, God's not being fair right now. And he's saying, how can you even say such a thing? Because you are who you are as a nation because God has done this once before. Do y'all see that? That he's going to now say, how do you, why now do you question the justice of God? Why now at this point in history? Why not when many of your ancestors' ancestors were left out so that Christ could come through your... Why now are you raising these questions? Right? You didn't raise it when it was Israel over Edom, but now you want to raise it as God's doing His thing? As God's doing His thing, now that you feel like you get the short end of the stick, you want to raise into question the justice and the kindness and the goodness and the mercy of God. Right? Like, follow that, follow that train of, of thought here. But what is the answer to this? So, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Does He let us drag on about it? No. Immediately. What is the answer? Is God unjust? Is, God, is there any injustice at all in God? No, by no means. Let that not even be something that crosses our minds. That God would be unjust. I can pro things look bad in this world today, but I can tell you if God were an unjust, unkind God, you would know no goodness in your lives. You would have no frame of reference to call anything evil because your day to day would seem as such. Right. The reason that we can even pose these questions is because God is not, there's no injustice in Him. His character is not bent or warped like ours is. Right? So let's, let's continue on. Let's continue on. For He says to Moses, so He says, by no means, 
By no means, and then he goes on to present more scripture to support what he's saying. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. We're going to go back and we're going to look at this passage of text, but I want us to, before we do that, I want us to see the conclusion that he draws from the text that we're about to go and look at. Right? Verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy, right? So what we're looking, when we look back at this text, this very simple sentence that Paul leaves for us in verse 16 is the conclusion that we will draw from this text. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. What is he trying to tell us here? Like, that's a simple sentence, right? What is the point he's trying to get across in this? What is he trying to tell us? It's not because of what we do. And here's the thing. Y'all know that I opened up the service tonight and I said, Lord, have mercy and compassion on us. Did I not? Do you know that it is God's prerogative to pour his spirit out on us? It is God's prerogative to bring revival. I could pray a thousand times over that you would all be missionaries, but not one of you will move, not one position to the left, or not one position to the right, if God does not move. If God does not move. And it is His freedom to move. I want us to understand this. I want us to understand this because many of the times as we dig through the passages of text that we're going to be looking at here, what immediately comes up is human freedom and the freedom of our wills. And here's what I want to ask you. Is God free? Is God free? Yes, He's absolutely free. What does that mean? See, here's the, here's the thing. If we think that God's character is in question, that's frightening. If, if God's character is in question, do y'all understand this? If God were evil and free, that would be the most fearful thing imaginable. Because an evil thing is set loose. But if God's character is upright, then what do we want? I want him to be free. And here's the thing that I would say to you. I know myself far too well. And if it came to it, and I had to, and here's, if y'all have looked into what I believe, I don't believe that what I'm about to say, I have to make that decision. But if I have to make the decision between my freedom and his freedom, whose freedom should I choose? Every time I should choose his. You know yourselves well enough to know that if you had to choose between God and you, you'd better choose God every time. Because He is the one whose freedoms acting out of His character, acting out of His will, are for good. Ours, on the other hand, most of the time they're not. Most of the time they're not. And when they are, I would say it's likely because God's mercy and grace has moved in such a way that all good things come from Him. Amen? All good things. All good things come from Him. 
So now let's, let's flip back to the reference that he's making here. And I want us to make a couple of observations. So we're going to be in Exodus chapter 33. The specific verse or the specific place where he quotes here is the latter part of verse 19. I'm going to start in verse 12 and just kind of read the account. And again, I would ask you, go and just fill in the full context here, but just for the sake of uh, Dad not hitting me about time after this, I'm going to cut it 12. <laughs> All good things come from him, yeah. So our it, so g- the goodness of God is not subjective, right? What what I mean by that is is that we don't decide whether it's good or bad, right? Yeah. So the goodness of God is an objective thing, right? It's fixed in him and not fixed in opinion, right? Like we don't take like a poll and say was that event good or bad. It either was good or it was bad. And that depends on an objective reality. That reality is God himself, right? So, yeah, so when I, when I say something like all good things come from him, what we could draw out from that is that there may be things even in our lives that in the moment are not good, that lead ultimately to a good better than that moment never having happened, Right? So we measure good by him. Yeah, so um, let's go back to chapter 33 of, uh, of Exodus. I'm going to look in verse 12. So Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom, will, uh, whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I-, I know you by name, and you have found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I have found favor in your sight. Please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. What's What's he doing here? This is, I mean, he's speaking to him. This is, this is what we do in prayer, right? Like, like you could read this as a, as a, as a prayer-like conversation, a petitioning of God here. And, and this is what's going on. He is petitioning God, right? And ultimately, we're going to see he's going to ask to show himself. So um, verse 14 here and he said my presence will go with you and I will give you rest and he said he said to him if your presence will not go with me do not bring us up from here for how shall it be known that we have found favor in your sight and I, I and your people is it not your going with us so that we are distinct and your people from every other people on the face of the earth I want you to see there just kind of a side note, that Moses' distinction, the thing that sets the people of Israel apart is what? The presence of God with them, right? That God is what makes his people distinct. Okay, so uh, verse 17, And the Lord said to Moses, this, uh, this very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. So again, Moses petitioning God, so please show me your glory. And he said, I will make my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And then he says this, and then he says this, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And then he goes and says what he says after. He's like, 
there's going to be some stipulations in the way that you see me. So what I want us to get from this is that Moses asks, so in in none of this do I want you to think that there are these deterministic style outcomes, right? Moses is asking, right? If you are sick or you are in need, ask of the Lord. Scripture will say you don't have because you don't ask, right? And that's not contradicting a thing that we're saying here, right? But what is, what is he trying to get? Moses is asking him for these things. And God is going to answer these things. But what he wants to know is that it is me who wills, right? It is not primarily about you and your asking. Why do I say it's not primarily? Because, again, if you don't ask, you won't have. If you're in need, you better be praying for it, right? If you have need, pray. Ask of the Lord. If you want to see Him in His glory, pray it. If you want to see your church move, pray it. Ask Him for it. But you're not calling down anything from heaven. If fire comes, it's because He will send fire. Not because you asked for it. And we should be humbled that He would even allow us to petition. We should know that it is God who shows mercy. It is God who shows compassion. God is free. God is more free than we. So that you may be free in asking, and he may be free in withholding. For his purposes. So if he withholds, if we pray and he withholds, what do we know about his character? He's blameless, faultless. Abraham says, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Like, how could we even question the character of God in any way, any part, when, when the reason that we can is because of Him? Right? That almost seems wrong that we would question Him. And before, like, had He not revealed Himself to us, we would still be not seeking Him. We would be seeking gods made after our own hands and our own images. And those are not gods at all. Right? Those are gods who answer to us. And you see, I think this is why we have such a problem with the God who does not answer to us. We answer to Him. And there's a part, even in us as believers, that when we're having to answer to someone, man, we want to rebel against that. We don't want to submit to that. We want to question His character and, and place our character as though it is greater than His. Like we are more upright than Him. And that is a foolish way to approach things. He redeemed us while we were His enemies. Like, let us get a better understanding of what Scripture tells us that we are without Christ before we start trying to question the character of God when He does what He wants to do. Because I can promise you this, all that God does, has ever done, and will ever do is good. It is good. Everything. Everything that He has ever done. So, 
Um, that's that particular reference. Let's flip back over. So the understanding that we're supposed to draw out of this reference, verse 16, so it depends not on human will or exertion. Have I made that clear in, in kind of breaking down that passage of text from Exodus there? That the point that we're trying to get across in the usage of this scripture is that it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Who is our hope dependent on? Let's be glad in that. Let's be glad in that, it, that in our hope is dependent on Him and not on ourselves. Right? The gospel is God-centered. Christ-centered. Right? And that it is for His glory. Even in the redeemed, we are bought with the price for His glory. His exaltation. We will praise Him for His name's sake. It is not a man-centered thing. It is a God-centered thing that man has been so graciously blessed to partake in. So here he pulls God's freedom. So I want us to see a couple of things going on here. So I want to point you down to verse 18 in Romans chapter 9. And I want us to see, before we go into what could be some of the more difficult texts tonight, I want us to see the point that Paul's trying to make. So Paul makes reference to Moses to show that though Moses asked, it was God's, God who makes the decision. It's God's will over man's will, Right? Like, man can ask, and we should ask, we're told to ask, but it is ultimately who that shows mercy and compassion? God. Right? So this idea of God's freedom. We're dealing tonight with God's freedom. So many of us are worried about our own freedom. We should be worried about the freedom of the God who chose us to save us on a cross when he did not have to when he was not in any way obligated to, and if you think he was, I'm going to continue making reference to, and I believe one of the significant reasons for the angelic realm is so that we can look and see that he does not owe us a thing. There is no salvation for the angels who have fallen. Do you get that? Do we understand what that means? Is that God is obligated to save none. But aren't you so grateful that it is God who shows mercy and compassion, though he was not obligated? See, I want you to understand the great love that he has for his son and his people, and that none of this was he obligated to. All of it he was freely willing to do. In this, I hope that we have a greater esteem for God and the decisions that He has made and what He has done and the significance of it, right? So that His name is glorified. His name is glorified, right? This is all of this. I hope that is the end of it, is that we glorify God's name as Paul does in the end of chapter 11. So verse 18, So then He has mercy on whom... Ever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. 
right? So we haven't covered specifically the text that he uses for hardening, but I want you to see here that Paul is using two references, one here to Moses, and then he's going to look back to Pharaoh, and he's going to make a reference there. And what he wants to show us is, is that it is God's freedom in showing mercy and compassion, and it is God's freedom in hardening. Who's free? Who's free? God is free. Let your hearts not be troubled. And I feel like I need to continue to remind you that the God who is free is a good, loving, just God. Do not question the character of this God. Do not question the motives of this God. He is in no way unjust. He is in no way unkind. Even in, when we look at this hardening, He is not unkind. Right? He is not unjust. And, I want to say, and, and this is why I think that, that our understanding of the state of the lost is critical here. Because it's going to shape the way that we understand what it means to be hardened. Okay? That's why I painstakingly try to point out time and time again when we have issues or errors in our thinking about the state of man, I want us to understand that in our state, the state from which you were born, you were not good. Right? Not one of you would have grown up an upright person. Because we all in Adam fail. And we all sin as accomplices. Right? So that we need mercy, but we're not owed mercy. Nor do we seek it. It's sought after us. This is the picture and shape and form that the gospel takes. So let us now read verse 17 here. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. I'm going to read that again. If you've not been following along, please follow along for that, because we're going to ask some questions about this. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Now let us flip back, and we're just going to, I'm going to read, I don't know how much, I've got a lot highlighted, um, we'll probably skip over much of it, but I want us to look at a couple of different things um, regarding Pharaoh, regarding all the things that, that kind of go on there. Um, so flip to early chapters of Genesis, the calling of Moses here, um, Genesis, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 3. Um, I'm just going to kind of, these are going to be shotgunned. I'll, I'll read them out, and, and if you want to come get with me after the service, um, I'll kind of, we'll walk back through it. I've got them all highlighted so I can easily get back to them. So Exodus chapter 3, verse 19. This is God speaking to Moses. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty 
hand. So as I'm looking and preparing, I'm wanting to get all the scriptures together that speak of this hardening that takes place to Pharaoh so that we can get a good picture, a good view, a good understanding of every place that it's used, every way in which it's used, because this is a big deal. Like, what's going on here? Is God making an innocent man kind of take the, the brunt of his wrath for no apparent reason, or is there something else going on here? So here we, say, here we see God speaking to Moses, and he says that, and he's speaking of the Pharaoh here, uh, that he will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. Over in chapter 4, verse 21, uh, again we read this, And the Lord says to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that... Uh, See that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So this is the first time in this account where we see a picture of hardening. And who's doing it? Who's doing it? God's, so I want us to get that this is before he's ever gone to Pharaoh. God's saying this statement, right? What's going to happen, you suppose? Can God's word fail? So what's going to happen? His heart's going to be hardened. Will his heart fail to be hardened? Is God doing something unjust? Unfair? Is there injustice in God in this? Yet he says, I'm going to harden the heart of Pharaoh. Um, verse 3 of chapter 7 of Exodus. So Exodus chapter 7 verse 3, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart and though and through a multiplicity of signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people of my people the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians so sh the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from them. What's going on here? Who's, do, who's, who's doing? What's going to go down in this situation? Pharaoh's heart will be hardened. Verse 13 of that same chapter, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So we're skipping over a good deal of this. Again, I would ask you to go and, and look at it. What we're going to find, and, and we could read on and on. Verse 14, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Chapter 8, verse 15, but when Pharaoh saw there was, res there was a respite, that means kind of it wasn't as bad as it was the moment before. Uh, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord said. So we get, as, as we dig into this, we get a multiplicity of language used about the hardening of Pharaoh. I want us to get that. We get God saying he's going to harden. Right? In the verse, in chapter 7 there, it seems vague. Like there's a point there that you could say that's possibly Pharaoh hardening his own heart, or that could be God hardening Pharaoh's heart. It just says his heart was hardened, right? So there's some verses that are very clear about which direction it's coming from. There's some verses that are vague on it, that leave it open. And there's some verses that say, well, it was, it was either God or, or it was Pharaoh doing the hardening. I want us to get this, that, that the language... Here's what I want us to get. As you're reading through this, many of you will be tempted, many of you will be tempted... To, to say this, and I would, I would venture to say that as you've, if you've been prep, prepping up to this, many of you will venture to look to see which one happened first, 
right? Am I wrong? Who's, who's looked at this ahead of time and, and said, which one happens first here? Does Pharaoh harden his heart first? Is God, here's, before any of that, let's get that God prophesied what would happen before anyone was even given the opportunity of that, right? What I want us to get in this is this, this kind of fluidity of using God or leaving it vague or, or saying Pharaoh, this is very, I think, very purposeful. Because I believe that they are one and the same. I believe that in God hardening, Pharaoh's hardening. Right? I don't think these two things are separated. I think that they coincide. And, and this, is, this is why I say that I think we need to have an understanding of the heart of the lost to understand the hardening of the heart. Right? You came to Christ, Why? Because he drew you. And through the preaching and proclamation of his word, he showed mercy. He showed kindness. He softened your hard hearts. So I want us to understand. Let me, let me get this. I want us to understand this. That when scripture speaks of God hardening Pharaoh's heart, if what Scripture tells us about the heart of man is true, listen to me closely in this, right? I would love if everyone would listen to me just so closely in this. If what Scripture tells us about the heart of man is true, then for God to harden the heart, like when you think of God hardening the heart, you think of this kind of action. You think of an action where God's reaching out, and you think of this kind of, it was, so, it was soft before. And God reaches out now and makes stone what was once flesh. If, if the picture that Scripture gives us about the heart of man is true, and it is true, then God's hardening is not this reaching out action, but this drawing back action. Does that make sense? So that when God hardens the heart of man... The, if you want another way that you could, that you could understand this, another, other words for this, the opening chapters of Romans says that God abandoned them. Right? And here's what, I want us, here's what I want us to know. If God withdrew Himself from mankind, we would be in much worse condition than we are today. The heart of man is wicked in all of its desires all of its longings, right? The world would be worse had God withdrawn Himself, right? So understand, when we look at Scripture, specifically here, I want us to get that Pharaoh hardened his heart, and God hardened his heart, right? Y'all, I, I'm, I'm using body language here to try to get a, 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 a point across, is that, is that I harden my heart against God. God hardens my heart against Him. Right? And these things are one and the same. When God hardens, I harden. Right? When God hardens, I harden. Right? When God draws back, I harden. Because that is the state. Now, I, would, I want to put a caveat on that. That is the condition of the lost. And, and I'm using myself here as an illustration. I'm saved. I love Christ. God will not remove himself from me. So I, I never again fear this. I never again fear this hardening of Pharaoh, right? 
But here's the thing that I want us to get. It is God who shows mercy, God who shows kindness, and God who hardens. All of these he is free to do because he is obligated in no way to save any. Do we understand? Like that's, 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 I mean it's, you are at the discretion of God. Right? You are at the discretion of God. And I get that if you question the character of God, that is absolutely frightening. But if God is good and upright and holy and all that Scripture tells us about Him, then need we fear that He is the one who gives mercy and compassion and also the one that harms? Does that have to be something that we fear? In one sense, as believers, I want to say absolutely not. In another sense, I want to say, what do you think is taking place when we sit still and we're not proclaiming the gospel? We're going to find as this, as this Paul presses on into this truth throughout the text that the gospel starts bubbling up in this. In chapter, in chapter 10, we're going to see like faith comes by hearing. We're going to see like beautiful are the feet, right? Like what I want us to get in all of this is that Paul is saying what God is doing here, he's done before. And God has hardened the heart of the Jews. But here's the thing. If you look, if you, and, and, and one thing that I would say, go and look historically at like, and there's not a ton known here, but there's enough to get a pretty interesting picture. One thing that I want to tell you is nowhere in Scripture does it say that God killed Pharaoh. There speaks of destruction of Pharaoh and of Egypt, but nowhere does it say that he murdered him in the sense that we would take these kind of things going. Right? He wipes out his people, right? But go back and read the text. We don't find a ton said about him destroying Pharaoh. There's an interesting thing. If you look back at just history, just world history, and you look at the Pharaohs, there was a Pharaoh, and the world would say, well, for whatever reason, but there was a Pharaoh that something happened, and this Pharaoh tears down every altar of every god in his nation. And I would say God makes himself known. Whether it's in destruction or whether it's in showing mercy. And he wanted to make himself known to the Egyptians. Scripture, we just, we've read that. That even, even in God showing his power and destruction, there is a sense in which him destroying us sometimes is the most merciful thing that can be done. So let's, let's, let's understand it is God who, what does it say? Verse 18, so then he, speaking of God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. I pray that I have done justice to the text up to this point to give you things to think about in the week to come. Next week, we're going to kind of pick up in verse 19 there. And what should come is the question that um, we will find answered in the text to follow, right? 
Paul here, what we've been discussing tonight, again, like I said at the beginning, is that what we talked about last week and the way that we interpreted those scriptures should have led us to similar thinking and reasoning that Paul then answers against. So too tonight there will be an element of what we've dug into that we will find Paul addressing and answering next week as we get into the text as well. So um, I pray that in all of this uh, we do a God-honoring work and in digging into who God is. I pray that we never question the character of God. I pray that y'all would be patient with me as we dig through this text, these difficult passages of text so that we can get an understanding of this. And, and all along the way, I want to wave the flag for every single one of us that we know God's character is good and holy and upright. Right, like I want that banner to be waved high because if we get through this text and we have questions about the character of God, then I failed. If we get through this text and we have questions about the sovereignty of God, then likewise I failed. I pray that in this that we can see that God is good and holy and just and that God is sovereign and cannot fail. So our hope in Christ is a hope secured in God for God's glory. And he has and continues to exalt his son, exalt the name of his son, and he will not fail. We will be a part of those people in Revelation that John sees into the future that has not yet happened, but is sure to happen every tribe, every nation, every tongue. And it's these truths that we are exploring that can give us the comfort in knowing. right? So that when you go, you know that God's word cannot fail. That is my hope in this. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for this day, for your many wonderful blessings. I, I know that this has been a working through this passage of text. Um, I am just drenched with sweat right now, Lord, and, and um, I'm sure that there are many questions um, that my brothers and sisters here in Christ have. Um, I pray that as they go out, that we've, that we've done uh, a work in Scripture tonight that would cause them to be thinking and digging and just plunging in the depths of these things, that they would hold tightly with one hand that you are good and holy and just and that, and, and that your heart is much better than ours, so that we would, as we read Paul in the opening of this chapter, not think that Paul has more compassion for the lost than you, but that we would also see that it is you who are working a plan together, the ultimate purpose of that plan being the glory of your Son, Lord, as you exalt Him and exalt His name above all other names. Let us be a part of taking that to the nations, Lord, for their sake.